Mark chapter 2, our passage will be verses 1 through 12. This, this passage is the first of a series of five conflicts. So far, Jesus hasn't really been in conflict with the Jewish leadership. It was hinted at last week, but this is the first of five clear conflicts between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. The nature of the conflicts over the next chapter or so, they change from blasphemy to Jesus' association with sinners and tax collectors to the questions of fasting and, and other issues. And it all comes to a head in chapter 3, verse 6, when the Jewish leaders decide to destroy Jesus. In this passage, Jesus comes into conflict with the Jewish leaders over a hugely weighty statement. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let us pray that as we read this text, the Spirit would be with us. Gracious God, we know that on our own, we are not spiritually minded, but are concerned with the things of the flesh. So now as we open your word and hear from Mark chapter 2, would your Spirit be with us both in the preaching and in the hearing? Would my words be faithful to what you have revealed and would the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. In this conflict, Jesus has a very clear claim. He also gives evidence. And then the responses of the people are quite notable. So that's going to be our outline. The claim, the evidence, and the responses. The claim Jesus makes, right here off the bat, is that he can forgive sins. Now, to us, that's not a huge surprise, because we've heard week after week that Jesus is the one who forgives sins. You have to remember in these days, their theology, which is quite accurate, is that only God can forgive. 
And the scribes reminded each other of this truth. Only God can forgive. But when Jesus addresses this paralytic, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. By saying son, he's showing a compassionate approach to this paralytic who came to him. But it's also a very powerful statement. He's not identifying something that has already happened. He is declaring the forgiveness of sins and enacting it actually in that moment. He didn't try to shy away from what he had done. And the scribes knew exactly what he was claiming to be doing. As we look at this claim that Jesus can forgive sins, we, we're going to see that there is uh, some confusion about the forgiveness of sins. And then there are two problems with Jesus forgiving sins in this moment. Confusion from the perspective of those who are watching and problems from the perspective of the scribes. The confusion that we may also have is, was the paralytic even asking for the forgiveness of sins? He came to be healed. So why did Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven? It seems to be a little bit uh, unasked for. Well, in the ancient understanding of suffering, sin was always the cause. And so this paralytic and his paralysis, it was very likely assumed that it was caused by sin. Sin of his own or sin of somebody near to him. We see other examples in scripture of this happening. In Numbers 12, Miriam got leprosy because of their sins in approaching the Lord. Uzziah also had leprosy for improperly burning incense in 2 Chronicles 26. And Israel had a massive pestilence that wiped out many people because of David's sin in 2 Samuel 24. So sin does, at times, cause specific sins. And one rabbi wrote, now this is not scripture, but it gives us a glimpse into how people understood the connection at these times. He said, a sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him. It gives us a little bit of glimpse into how they understood the connection between sickness and sin. But we also know that not all sickness and not all suffering are caused by specific sins. There are other examples of that in scripture. In Job, he suffers not because of any of his own sins. The man born blind in John 9, Jesus was straight up asked by his disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But again, the question that the disciples asked showed the assumed connection between sin and suffering on the part of the, those who were watching. So we have to ask, what is Jesus doing? Is he healing a sin that will automatically heal a paralysis? Is this paralysis caused by the paralytic's sin directly? Or is he simply answering the people, healing a disease that they thought was the direct result of the man's sin, thus meeting them in their understanding? Well, we have to remember Mark's goal here. Mark's goal is to show us who Jesus is. Every time we come to a passage, we have to ask not why is this miracle here? Is it here for its own sake? It's never here for its own sake. The miracle is here to show us something about Jesus and to affirm his message. Jesus had been preaching. I would be hard pressed to think that Jesus is preaching about these few things and then would go and do a miracle to affirm his message if it had nothing to do with the healing. 
And so Jesus has very likely been preaching a message of the forgiveness of sins. And if he hasn't already this evening, he does at this moment. The sins are forgiven. He declares it. He enacts it. And so whether this sin is a direct result of, or this suffering is the direct result of this man's sin, or whether it is uh, simply the way they understood it, it doesn't change what we learn about Jesus. He's the one who can forgive sins. And he is the one who can make whole, who can heal. Even this Christ has the power to forgive and to overcome this brokenness. But there is a connection between sin and suffering that we know to be certain. That is the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell into brokenness. So all suffering is the result of sin at one level, even if not directly an individual's sin. But since Jesus can claim to heal this sin, which is rooted in the sin of Adam, If he can claim to heal even this sin, he must also have the ability to forgive the first sin and all its implications. This is a powerful forgiveness. So the paralytic came seeking physical healing and whether or not he was seeking forgiveness of sins, he got it too. Now there seems to be a problem. Jesus is claiming to forgive sins. The first one, It's a theological problem. After Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven in verse five, look at what the scribes did. (laughs) They got right to the heart of the issue. They said, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Originally, this says, who can forgive sins but one God? That is the exact same language as the heart of, of Jewish theology. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is an attack on the heart of the Jewish theology. If God is not the one who forgives sins, then this is news to the Jewish system. But notice how they ask the question, why does this man speak like that? This man. Now, Jesus, absolutely, 100% man, but they're missing the fact that he is 100% God as well. And we're about to flesh that out here in a moment. If Jesus is just a man, then yes, he is a blasphemer. And blasphemy is when a person makes himself to be God and a blasphemer is worthy of death, according to Leviticus 24. So the issue is not whether or not the scribes have good theology. They have very good theology. Only God can forgive sins. And if anybody makes himself to be God, he is worthy of death. But what they are missing is who Jesus is. They're missing that he is God. For all the secrecy Jesus has attempted to maintain by commanding the demons to be quiet and telling the leper not to share, there is no lack of clarity about what he is doing here. And in being accused of blaspheming, he doesn't try to backtrack. Instead, he doubles down. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He's doubling down on these claims. And he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth 
Forgiveness was only supposed to come from heaven. And Jesus is saying, I I know that forgiveness is supposed to come from heaven. I have come from heaven and I have brought all authority on heaven and earth. And I am forgiving sins on earth. He is on a heavenly kingdom mission, which we've seen the whole book. And forgiving sins is in the scope of growing the kingdom of heaven and bringing in God's children. He also calls himself the son of man. By saying son of man, he is hinting at a whole world of theological implications that Mark really isn't going to unpack until chapter 8. But we need to take a look here at what it means that Jesus is the son of man, even briefly. It doesn't make Jesus just another son of another man. Instead, quite the opposite, it sets him apart. Not just any son of man can forgive sins. Only the one son of man can forgive sins. This whole episode and the episodes we've seen so far highlight his unique power and his authority and his teaching compared to the scribes and his healing, which wowed so many. But this title comes from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we read that there is one like a son of man who was before the ancient of days and to him, listen, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That doesn't sound like a man to me. This is a title for a divine being, a king with an eternal kingdom. Jesus could have claimed the title Messiah because he was the Christ. But we remember that had all kinds of baggage associated with it, military expectations. And so by claiming the title Son of Man, which did not have quite a fleshed out cultural understanding, he was claiming the same authority, but doing it in a slightly more covert way. And so we see Jesus is indeed claiming to be divine. It's, it's as clear as anything. He's claiming to be God, and with such a claim, there will be waves. And we'll see them mounting over the next few episodes. Let's look at another problem with this claim. Isn't blood necessary for sins to be forgiven? Remember, we're dealing with the Old Testament understanding of sacrifices and forgiveness of sins. There is no, according to Hebrews 9, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. A sacrifice is necessary and that is glaringly absent in this episode. There is no sacrifice. There is no animal being brought. Or at least so it seems. Of course, we know the end. We know the story of the one, the the perfect lamb, who became the sacrifice, standing right here in this story. And so we wait. Again, as Mark is very carefully unfolding more and more about Jesus, we see that he is the sacrifice that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. He saw the picture. He he knew this man's life, this paralytic's life, from before the foundation of the world, and he knew that he would be the sacrifice to forgive this man's sins in this moment. And so we see by Jesus' claim here that God incarnate gave himself as a sacrifice to forgive all sins and to conquer death and suffering. What a claim. 
This is the gospel laid out before skeptics and enemies and the elect, all with different responses here in our passage. So that's the claim. And then Jesus offers evidence. The evidence is the miracle. Because again, the miracles don't stand on their own. The miracles serve a purpose in affirming divine revelation. And so Jesus says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? This is a rhetorical question. Which one is easier? It's to say your sins are forgiven because there's no evidence in the moment. If Jesus were to tell this man to rise, take up your bed and go home, and he continued to lie there, he would be powerless. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, there can be speculation as to the effectiveness of it. But if that paralytic stood up, if the paralytic were healed, then we have evidence. And Jesus offers empirical evidence. If he had not raised, if he had not stood up, Jesus would be a poser, a liar, a fraud, and no different than a false prophet. But he heals the man by his word. He simply commands, and the man stands up. The same word is commanded to rise. It's the same word. Simon's mother-in-law, when Jesus took her by the hand and she rose up and was healed from the fever. This is the power of Jesus' healing in action. He picked up his bed and he went home. And he did so and he walked out before them all. The people were blown away. We have to remember the role of miracles. They always accompanied messages. They always accompanied teachings. I think so many times the mistakes in, the, uh, in churches these days can be made when the miracles become miracles for the sake of miracles or for the sake of glorifying anybody but Jesus. The message at hand is that Jesus can forgive sins and the miracle at hand supports it. As amazing as that healing was, it wasn't as amazing as the fact that the paralytic sins had just been forgiven. To walk, that's incredible. To be forgiven of sin, to be healed of the very thing that separates humanity from God is eternally more significant. That power is remarkable. Last week, the leper was healed, cleansed on the spot and was reconciled to society. External reconciliation. He was made right with the, with the people, with the city. He was able to enter again into the synagogue. This week, the paralytic gets reconciliation with God himself. Internal reconciliation. And so we see that the power of what, of what Christ can do is growing as we keep reading these stories of Mark and we start to put it all together and we realize he's painting an incredible picture of the power of the Savior who can reconcile us externally but also internally with the only being who matters, with God himself. And this is all by his own words, by the power of his words. When there's earth-shattering news, it demands a response. The earth-shattering news these days, as I've you know, skimmed through the internet, the earth-shattering news is that uh, there is free gasoline in some places. 
Uh, there are some wealthy businessmen or some people who own gas stations who have opened up the pumps for people to come and fill up their cars for free because at this point, gas is very expensive. It's a heavy burden. That's earth-shattering news for so many. And if I told you that a gas station just a half mile down 59 from us was offering free gasoline to anyone who comes by, you would have a decision to make. First, you need to figure out if you trust me. In this case, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> but if you did, are you going to take the offer? Do you take it or do you not? If you take it, then you believe me and you admit that you're willing to take what someone else is offering to you. And if you reject it, then you're either saying you don't believe me or that you're okay on your own resources or that you don't need gasoline or that you would just prefer not to take charity. Either way, there's a response that must be made to significant news. And of course, this analogy is minuscule compared to the earth-shattering news that sins can be forgiven, that the brokenness between us and our God can be reconciled. The news of Jesus is infinitely greater than any other news that we could come across. And the responses vary here in our text. Let's look at three responses. The Jewish leaders responded. They were blind. They did not see who Jesus was. They could not see who was standing right in front of them. They saw the miracles, but they were blind to the meaning of the miracles. They heard Jesus preaching, but they were hardened against its application to them. And so they sought to destroy Jesus in chapter three. They had many of their facts right. God alone forgives sin. Jesus claimed to be God. If he's just a man, he's a blasphemer worthy of death. But they failed to recognize and submit to the reality of who this Jesus is and what it means for their lives, for their society, for their religious structure, for their understandings, for their family, and for their eternity. And then there was uh, the response of the paralytic. The paralytic and his friends have faith. And we see that because Jesus said, it says in Mark uh, 2, 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And we could say that they believed in the miracle, but you have to remember all these miracles point to something deeper. And so we know that these, this paralytic and his friends believed, yes, in the physical miracle, but in something deeper, the very message that the miracle proves. The Spirit instills faith and draws them to trust this Jesus standing right in front of them. Yes, they believe that Jesus could give motor function, but they also believed that he can forgive sins. And so their faith is a parallel to the faith of all who place their trust in Jesus Christ as the one who forgives sins through his sacrifice, the sacrifice that he became on Calvary. And then there's the crowd. The crowd was wowed. We never saw anything like this, they said. And they glorified God. It's the closest we see to their response, but even this is incredibly vague. Is it in reference to God the Father? 
Or do they see that Jesus is God and do they trust him? We're not quite sure. Not at this point. But as we follow the crowd through the book of Mark, we see that they never end up repenting or turning to Jesus in faith as the crowd. So Mark uses the crowd to show us as they are undecided that we as the readers cannot remain undecided. We're invited to step into the shoes of the crowd and to figure out, are we like the Jewish leaders who want to destroy this Jesus because it disrupts everything we understand and everything we know? Or will we be the weak and the needy? The sufferers and the sick who look to Jesus and are forgiven. The crowd makes no decision and so the reality of their sins condemns them. Oh, how often we respond like the Jewish leaders, don't we? We think, I've got my facts lined up. I got my plan made. My system is working for me. It's easier to keep going the way I've been going without the disturbance of this God-man. In our fallen natural state, we don't want Jesus to be the king We want to be in control. We don't want to bow down to Jesus. We don't want to follow his laws. We don't want to surrender our self-sufficiency. We've been doing fine. Why disturb us now, Jesus? And so, we ought to beg God the Spirit to enlighten our minds, to see our sin, to see our need, to see that our hearts are hard and to follow for Christians and non-Christians alike, we can find life when we surrender to the Savior, whether it is for the first time or whether it is the daily surrendering of our desires once again to our Savior. We have to remember that this Jesus that we follow doesn't just talk about the plan for salvation. He is the plan of salvation. And so we ask that we would respond like the paralytic and his friends. And their faith was not some abstract feeling. So many times we think faith needs to be this feeling that we conjure up, this emotion. Let's talk about, let's break it down a little more concisely. Their faith had an object. They were looking at something. They were looking at the Savior. They were focused on Jesus. They tore through the crowd and literally through the house to get to Jesus. He was the object of their faith. We're not saved by faith itself. In fact, we're saved by grace through faith. But that faith must be directed at Jesus. It's the object of our faith that saves us. It is Jesus himself. And so our faith is the means by which we receive all that he has done. John says he must, John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. The focus on Christ grows and grows. And then the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And then we see the things of earth grow strangely dim. And in one of the oldest hymns that we sing in the church today, be thou my vision. This old English is is really beautiful. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. It's saying, Lord of my heart, be what I see. 
would everything else be not to me except that you are? That's the object of faith. That's our Savior. That's our God. Faith has an object, and faith leads us to reliance. Reliance. When we feel pressed in on all sides, remember that our enemies will not prevail. Jesus stood in the face of his enemies here who sought to kill him. That does not encourage us to try to stand in the face of our enemies. Instead, what it does is it tells us that somebody already has stood in the face of our enemies. And Jesus on that cross, when he was killed and when he rose from the dead, he stood against our enemies. And so he is somebody we can rely on. We feel so torn down when we're pressed in on all sides, when we feel like we can't win. But faith in Christ relies on him. And it lets us fall apart in his hands, not in somebody else's hands. Faith in Christ doesn't care if everything else disappears. Status, comforts, relationships, jobs, traditions. Take them all and give me Jesus. He's reliable. And a faith that relies on Christ says, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we trust that he will do as he has promised. He will give rest to the weary and healing to the broken. And this obedience, this faith, excuse me, leads to obedience. You've heard the term, the obedience of faith. If we love Christ, we'll keep his commandments. And every time we fail, we remember he died for us anyway. Christians, how often we don't obey and sometimes we directly disobey. We let our anger flare up again. We maintain that grudge because it's our only meager control of the situation. Let go of that anger. Let go of that grudge and obey Christ who says to forgive. And we let our selfishness get in the way of caring for others. We make sure that we have everything we need lined up and three backup plans before we even consider helping somebody else. What about the command of Jesus to consider others as more important than yourselves? And the promise that he will take care of us. I see the obedience of faith among the people of Christ Presbyterian Church. I see mentoring going on. And it changes lives. I see people sharing faith, hospitality, inviting people into each other's homes. I see honest conversations about the struggles of life. I see people pointing each other to Christ. And I see people encouraging each other to love and to good deeds. That's what the obedience of faith looks like. Let's keep our eyes on the Savior. Let's keep living out of what He has offered, the forgiveness of sins. He is God. Then all these vestiges of our slavery to sin will fade away. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Father, you designed the salvation before time began and we are grateful to be the recipients of the work of Jesus. Would we not harden our hearts against the person of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives? Would we see Jesus alone and would your Spirit kill our fleshly desires and would our faith be set on our Savior, 
who has the authority to forgive sins and did so on earth 2,000 years ago. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.